Hello. This is not Josie and Robin's book shambles. It's kind of Robin's book shambles, but it's not even that, because book shambles requires the element of Josie. It's much like space-time. You can't really remove one and then the other remains. So this is a kind of book shambles with me waiting for Josie, who's turning up tomorrow. So rather than go and see some bands, I instead bumped into people then demanded that they said things to me. And as a special bonus, I also had to do a little bit of re-recording of introducing people like you do on a Radio 4 documentary. So I do things where I say, and here's Nizmaha. I was joined by... Uh, enjoy this new level of professionalism. And because this was filmed around the Latitude site, obviously there is quite a lot of background noise, and every now and again the wind will blow away the voice of the person you're listening to. So, not perfect, but hopefully very enjoyable conversations. Comic book creators, indeed comic book creators of The Wicked and The Divine, Kieran Gillen and Jamie McKelvey. The, uh, we're now recording while a band, I don't know if it's a mariachi band, play the theme tune to Match the Day. Why not? Uh, because we're uh, at a festival in Suffolk. Um, <laughs> and uh, with uh, Kieran Gillen and Jamie McKelvey, who've just done an event, or about half an hour ago, did an event about the Wicked and uh, Divine. Or the Wicked and the Divine. The Divine, yeah. 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 Um, so what is, I, I know uh, Phonogram Singles Club, I know Suburban Glamour. You, Jeremy, have also been away at Marvel for Yeah, a yeah, and Kieran does a lot of Marvel stuff too, although he's kind of wrapping up. Yeah. Um, um, obviously, it's easier for a writer to do more than one book at once. So, so, <laughs> so, so Kieran's done uh, everything, and I've just been drawing his books for him. Um, yeah, so Wicked and Divine is... Uh, do you want to hear what it's about? Should we describe yeah. it? Kieran's got a spiel that he, he he's... he's uh, gets increasingly better at as the day goes on. <laughs> not really. Um, it's about gods as pop stars and pop stars as gods. Uh, the fundamental thing that drives it is every 90 years, 12 uh, gods reincarnate in the form of young people and they are worshipped and loved and feared and they perform secretive miracles and in two years they're dead. Uh, this is about the 2014 incarnation. Oh, that is... I once was... D- d- I wanted to do this thing years ago where it was about... Uh, basically based on David Cronenberg's The Brood. So there was this matriarchal figure who would create tumescent pop bands, but again, they don't. They, mine, far more pessimistic. Then a month, <laughs> a month of being divine and then destroyed. I love that, that uh, uh, dealing with, with pop bands like that. Why? So now, do you see that also? Is that partly about the speed of the cycle of, of pop music? It's literally... Plus, I got the idea. This always gets dark quickly. I uh, got the idea after my dad died, and it's basically my initial response to his being diagnosed with terminal cancer. And it's fundamentally a device that allows you to focus in on um, why do anything anyway. In that kind of why be yeah. an art, you know, yeah. we've got a ve- only got, two, only years, got two years, yeah, yeah, two years or ten years or seventy years. We've got a very small time on this planet. Why the hell do something as inconsequential as being an artist? And the thing is, it's not like, yeah, there's certainly some meta commentary on the pop industry, but it's the kind of the fact we go all the way through history. Like we're just having an issue that's about to come out, which is basically putting the romantic poets in 1830 as gods. So we, we're doing Bi- we're doing our riff on Byron. So and, uh, Byron's Shelley Lucifer and, and Mary Shelley's Woden, and yeah. Uh, well, that's great because that's the 200th anniversary of her dreaming up Frankenstein. Yes. Yeah. Yeah, it's one of yeah. those kind of agreeable coincidences, actually. Yeah, but yeah. So that's kind of like, we're both, there is definitely satirical elements in part of it, but it's also more celebratory than people might think. Yeah. There's a fundamental ambivalence to it. You know, and it's about, you know, it's about us as well and that kind of, what the hell are we being, what the hell am I spending my life doing what I'm doing? Yeah. See, I think, I, I would have seen that from the opposite direction, which is, uh, because life is finite, surely do something as inconsequential as art, <laughs> because of the delight of, of, of creating. So... 
there's a kind of um the good thing that since there's 12 of the gods and all the characters like also in there uh you get all these characters different responses to it in that kind of okay i'm doing this i'm making this kind of art for this kind of reason yeah and so we get a chance to have the whole dialect between them all and, you know and it, the fact they've got godly powers you can do that kind of classic superhero trope of having a philosophical argument mainly expressed through punching each other so like you can have that back push and pull um, but it's you know it's a big wide ranging sort of structural thing yeah. kind of design. Like so the- do you have an end in sight, or uh, you do? You- yeah, 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 well, they're dentists. Yes, it's, stru- <laughs> it's a big sort of structural kind of like me and Jamie have never done like a long form comic like the old Vertigo runs. So is it? I'm especially aware that this is probably going to be ours. So all the way from the beginning, it's we know the end. Uh, we know like the, the sort of structure of the four years. In terms of every every trade has a very big change, but every year goes into a different mode. Yeah, like so, the, so uh, we're, at, we're at issue 22 now, yeah. and we're about halfway through. Yeah, so, the so. Next, we're, back, we're just about starting the next, the, the third year, and the third year is very much metaphorically the. Um, we've just gone for the pop album. Like the one that's just finished is the full on pop album, and this is when we get a bit decadent and do too much coke. It's, it's, the, it's the task to the yeah, yeah. Uh, last we're one's rumours. Yeah, so literally, literally a double album is the kind of the next two trades. It's that level, of, and it's it's quite tricky to write because it's about self indulgence. <laughs> <laughs> And if that's about self-indulgence, trying to ride that without being self-indulgent is going to be tricky. But it's fun, you know. <laughs> but I think you're allowed in a certain world of comics, there is a level of, I, I think, expectation there will be some self-indulgence. I mean, I think of, you know, reading Alan Moore's Providence, and I know that because I haven't read enough H.P. Lovecraft, which means, not reading enough means you haven't read all the books Alan Moore has yeah. on H.P. Lovecraft, <laughs> and therefore there are things that may well get missed, and there may well be that beautiful kind of luxuriant feeling of going, I know I'm not even getting all of this, so I know there is something deeper behind this. And, and, and there is more there is, there is a mysticism kind of hidden yeah, by we, their depth of knowledge we do really like to structure our books like that like, Wiccan Divine benefits being read more than once to start yeah. with and there's a whole bunch of things happening under the surface that you don't even need to get necessarily yeah but it's um, like you know um, Alan is an enormous influence on me you know uh, in that, and that structuralism I mean Watchmen was the comic that got me into comics mm. so they're kind of the fundamental structuralism that every panel means something and every line connects to everything else that's how, we, how we're trying to do this and it's kind of like when you get to the end the devote the I don't know if any of this by the way is actually going to be able to be heard because I'm not exactly sure what is going on there's some booming but it's it it really it it sounds horrible yeah um at this particular distance I'm sure if you were the correct distance (laughs) away from the speaker and the people are experimenting with their physicality on some kind of lake it's wonderful uh but so sorry let's go back to Watchmen because that introduction to you of I suppose the potential of a comic book yeah how to read it and basically how comics one of the, my favourite things about comics is they are short enough to be reread so in other words if you do deep structural stuff in a literary form it takes longer to reread a novel whilst comics you can reread quicker and you can also yeah. move through time and space and Alan's done in whole essays about this kind of stuff and that's always been kind of how we've done it like we've yeah. kind of like singles club the idea of doing the seven and you're meant to reread it and you're meant to try to see how things and how the characters arcs dovetail and separate and how we how we fought, phrase our arguments through contrast that's kind yeah. of one of our major that's one of the way we have such big casts and the idea you can really understand what the book's about through the irony as in any one individual arc isn't going to get it all and the point is you, oh this is true but this is also true and therefore you can sort of synthesise what we're trying to say yeah and um, the trades like a collection only takes an hour or so to read yeah. so you can go back to the beginning if you want to yeah and see it all from the from the start. How the, difficult? Sorry. No, no. Uh, the Wicked Divine is going to be interesting. We both came to comics because of comics. You yeah. know what I mean? And that kind. Of, that's like that's 
you know, I would write a novel if I wanted to write a novel. <laughs> but the kind of the, the possibilities, what you can do in comics, it doesn't really work as the same. It's yeah. Me and Jamie. Kind of yeah, yeah, no, no, I agree. <laughs> That's what I was going to say. What, what, what was for you the work that you thought this is definitely what I want to do? Obviously, you were good at art school. You had no, not really. No, I, I mean, I, I, I drew as a kid, and then I kind of stopped when I was sort of middle of my teenage years, um, mostly because I hated my art teacher. And I just didn't do anything with it. And then I read, uh, my girlfriend at the time made me read Sandman when I was at university. And I was at university at Nottingham, um, which has a really good comic shop called Page 45. And uh, it's, it's a very welcoming, friendly shop. And I used to go in, I'd buy a Sandman trade each week. And any, any other place, you know, once I'd got to the last Sandman, that'd be it. I'd read that and moved on. But uh, Stephen, the guy that runs Page 45, I was like, well, if you like that, then you're like this. If you like that, you're like this. And like sort of led me into uh, comics in a route that um, appealed to me and uh, yeah Sandman was the first one when I was like oh I didn't realise I could be like this because as a kid I read like X-Men and, and Transformers and, and uh, even the Beano and stuff and I read 2000 AD uh, a bit too early because my big brother we shared a room and he was reading it and so I was reading like Nemesis and Zenith when I was like six years old which is not the age to read it but um but it's yeah, funny so though, I, revisiting some of the stuff. I, I went to, there was a fantastic exhibition which had your work, the Cartoon yeah, Museum, yeah, yeah, yeah. had uh, quite a lot of your work there actually. Mm. And um, that was a really interesting journey of the possibilities of, of, of comics. Mm. But then some of the stuff that I go back to, not the kind of stuff that was on display, there you go, oh yeah, this really is a nothingy thing. You know the bit where you imagine nostalgia will carry you through mm. some of those old comic strips and you go, no, it actually is quite boring. And that's So then sometimes people will immediately dismiss the whole art form. Yeah. The idea, it, I was saying some of the other day, it's like going, um, you know, romance novels are rubbish. Oh, have you read uh, Tess Durville's? No, I read uh, Rash Intruder from Mills and Boo. <laughs> and you go, well, well, hang on. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah. I mean, especially with comics, you get that quite a lot because it's not an accepted. Well, no, even than now, it used to be. yeah, it's better. It is better than it used to be, it but it's still quite a new better. form. It's only about hundred years or so, really, um, unless you want to talk about like cave paintings and stuff. But in its current form, it, yeah, it is better than it used to be. Um, you still get all that rubbish about like, oh, this one's transcended the form. Yeah. It's like it hasn't transcended. It's just a good example of the form. Yeah. <laughs> the Onion just done an. I think it was something about an Onion article today. The uh, comics is uh, comics are for grown ups. That if for the seventy ninth time, or, you know, yeah, 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 yeah. Time this year. That, oh yeah every time there's an article in the guardian about comics and the article's often quite good but it's always like piff bam pow yeah. comics aren't for kids anymore so it's been having those articles for about 20 years controlling us by now which yeah. I quite like yeah, yeah, yeah. If, I, if they were doing it deliberately rather than incompetently I would actually entirely on side <laughs> so when you're but with, with the wicked and the divine I presume you're also then getting immersed if for instance you're writing about Baron and you're writing about Mary Shelley that is part of the joy of going and journeying into their lives that you have the alibi that it is work to read Baron, to read biographies of Baron, to you know the journals, whatever it might be. Yeah, absolutely. It's like any anything I'm reading, and I read mainly reading nonfiction, goes into the work. And, and even if I'm planning to read it for fun, it always ends up in the work anyway. Because yeah. especially something the way we design Wikdip, it's about art and culture and how art transforms people and why you choose to be an artist. I everything. <laughs> <laughs> so like anything I read or study, I think oh that might be an interesting god in the 1640s. Or, you know what I mean? And it all kind of goes in there. And that's kind of what we designed. Yeah. At least part of the conception of the book was, this is everything we've ever loved. Literally, and you can sort of, our entire career, and what we've done, uh, kind of we capitulate through it. And also we go back and like, there's bits and pieces which are clearly, there's, there's bits of the Invisibles, there's clearly bits of the Watchmen, there's bits of Sam, and we kind of like, we deliberately dance with our influences a bit. And then, so that kind of, oh yeah, yeah. 
At least part of it was to, oh yeah, and when I've done all this, I'll be able to do something else. Yeah. This feels like a big, like, you know, yeah, yeah, yeah. turning 40 in many ways. This is me purging uh, my entire history. Yeah, yeah. And uh, in terms of specific research as well, you put loads into it. Like with the, the, the special that happens in a couple of months, the 1831 one, um, they use a huge amount of research into trying to find the story there for yeah. those. It's tricky. It's one of the things where I've ended up riffing on the, on the obvious one because Wickdiff's kind of trashy. Yeah. It's about pop music because they a deliberate provocation to it. What we say about phonogramming is that if you did phonogram as a serious literary novel, it disrespects pop music. The problem with pop music is it's hard to take seriously. Yeah. And that's why we lean into genre. Uh, and so there's a bit of, there's a bit we kind of do that. It's quite aggressive. As in, I've always been interested in um, art forms which aren't particularly respected. You know, I've yeah. co- you know, gone to comics, uh, pop music, and video. I used to be a video game critic. You know, and I'm, I, I like fighting uphill. <laughs> <laughs> um, um, and a lot of that kind of goes into the work as well, I think. Yeah, yeah. Would yeah. it be disappointing, though, if you were truly embraced by the mainstream one day, if the whole comic oh, no. world... <laughs> no. would you, uh, so so that, that point where it's just... Isn't there still a prison of excitement? I mean, I found that difficult with... When I first started doing stand-up, and it was still in the kind of... The alternative comedy was still a thing. Mm. And now sometimes I look at the Fringe brochure, and I look at mainstream comedy on telly, and I go, oh, that's what I am there. I mean, I'm not that, <laughs> necessarily, but that's what people think if they, they meet you. And there's something quite nice when it was a little bit more of an underground scene. I mean, I think it still is. It, it, it's, it's doing better. It's interesting... 10 years ago when somebody would ask me what I did and I said oh I draw comics the, their response would be oh they still make those <laughs> and now they've heard of them now they know comics exist but it's still a bit like a, a, an unknown yeah. um, you, you say you work in comics no they'll never met anyone who works in comics before that's just kind of like you might, you're might you an interesting talking dog yeah, in that way Yeah. Um, see whereas now if you say you're a comedian people go oh yeah a friend of mine's a comedian <laughs> everyone has a friend who's a comedian that, that's the only way they can make as many TV shows uh, <laughs> etc as they do <laughs> New export. Yeah. Uh, so you might stop being exotic. You're yeah. currently exotic. Yeah, I, it's a beautiful rare bird. That's yeah, a shame in yeah. Uh, it's, Look it's, at the arcane uh, comic book writers across <laughs> the river. It's, it's changing. It's I mean, bit, I would like to completely redefine pop culture in our image. You know, I'm not saying we don't want to do that, <laughs> uh, but then would hate that as well. You know, what I mean, as in pop, Wicked was not designed to be a hit, but a little bit. Yeah, a little like, bit. This yeah, is, this was yeah. as phonogram is deliberately. Monstrous, you know, and it's mm. about people no one likes. And it, well, I was in it, and Wick did was a bit more okay. We're going to do Daft Punk's second album, and we, and we want to see if we can make people dance for once. Um, and we kind of take the piss and deconstruct it a bit, but really, it is a bit of a pop album, yeah, yeah. Um, which is fine, yeah. So it's like, but I, I think it was ever got at least a lot about the third arc is very much about my mixed feelings about Wick did success, right? <laughs> you know, <laughs> as in that that has ended up being metabolized by the book as well. Um, so the answer is kind of yes, but it's also what we're aiming for as well. Yeah. Is the st- sorry, sorry, Jamie, you can sorry? Have- no, no. But no I, w- I wonder, is there still within the comic book world? And I hear it from some writers that, and and an artist that, the amount that is projected into your work by those who are reasonably obsessive that they will say, I I know what you mean, I understand now, and I've and they will find something at a level of meaning, which. Is it ever problematic where you think oh, we didn't mean that at all, but it is best for this person to continue to believe because sometimes they can be. I was trying to think who I was reading about the other day, where someone went up to them and, and said, "I know what you mean," and, and and then said it, and the bloke went, "Oh, oh that's not what I meant at all." And he went, "You don't know anything. I hate you." <laughs> and this person, the relationship had changed within the space of two minutes. Yeah, it's interesting. Um, I don't know how you don't. You just kind of have to let them. Do it, I think. Death of the author and all that. Yeah. It's the sort of thing, I, when, when it's out there, people can do what they want with it. Yeah. The second it's out there, I generally have the position that I am also a reader. So if anyone says it's about this, 
I might say, yeah, but what about this panel? And that's normally about negative interpretations in terms of like, I, I know you have hate this book for this reason, but that isn't true. Yeah, that's, that's the, the only time I really have a problem with it is when, um, yeah. They, they, yeah, it's when the people choose to, you know, decide. That when there's a evil. sort of a bad faith argument going yeah. on there and it's like, this is, isn't what's happening. But beyond that. Go, go knock themselves out. Yeah. You know, it's art. And it's like, I'm sure I read far too much into the stuff I did. At the same time, I mean, is a book designed to be overread into. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so people say, "Do you mean this?" I mean, normally the answer is yes. Yeah, and I mean, we occasionally get wrong because photographs are more obscure. Yeah, yeah. But with div, we kind of do get. A, generally, people seem to get it. And and the, I mean, the thing about any sort of art is that it's as much about as what you take away from it as the actual object itself or the person itself. So I would never want to say no, you're wrong to somebody if they've taken something good from something we created, even if it wasn't what we intended. Is there something about compared to the normal prose novel, the that you can for something which is considered by many to be quite flippant, be incredibly dense mm. within in a frame and with very few words and with the details and the kind of I might even say semiotics at some point, <laughs> but I'm not going to. But the, the, you, you you are going to you 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 are able to that thing as you were saying the, to revisit and revisit and revisit and yeah. see layer after layer after layer and yet people are just thinking oh you just skim across and that's it yeah absolutely yeah I mean there's so much we put into it um, some people get some people don't and that's fine some people get it on the second third read some things are designed to only be got on the second or third read and you can put so much into yeah a single panel that is unlocked however many issues later so I did a speech relatively recently about Watchmen, like, uh, like last year it was, it must have been, but it was basically me doing why, I, why Watchmen works, why, why Watchmen's machine, which was basically designed to teach you to read comics in terms of like how to read comics in a more literary way, as in it, it's about the cycle, it's about you pick up stuff, and if you reread it, you get more stuff every time, and it's deliberately designed to try to teach people that. And I picked up the idea of Ozymandias in front of the screens, and, all, and basically sitting in front of a nine-panel grid and reinterpreting the universe he's in. So it's a kind of like Ozymandias' reader of Watchmen, and that's kind of what we try to do and it's a book that kind of the idea that Watchmen taught you how to read it Wickdiv is expressly trying to take a read trip like often that the Young Avengers readers who came in maybe on used to Vertigo or on used to buy more art comics or anything else and it's kind of like a four year degree course like by the end of Wickdiv we'll have introduced many different sorts of forms of approaching like the first arc is much poppier the second one's weirder the third one's really fucking weird the fourth one's pop again and the fifth yeah, you know mm. and the book's about cycles you know as I said so it's expressly in the book that you are meant to reread it once more we return we are here at this point again yeah. and that kind of um, that ambivalence to cycles and that is both an instruction and what the book's about I guess I don't know in short yes <laughs> the uh our final question, we mentioned Alan Moore quite a lot. Uh, for you, is there a, uh, a least worst or at least uh, perhaps even a good Alan Moore uh, cinema adaptation? Um, as its own thing, I don't mind V for Vendetta because the book is so rooted in the 80s and Thatcher and stuff like that. It, it, and, and Britain, even. It, it wouldn't... I mean, maybe... A, make more sense to make a direct adaptation now <laughs> the way things are going but as, as its own thing it's fine it's not as good as the book but it's fine I like the credit sequence in Watchmen yeah that was the best bit in it yeah and that was the, telling me actually the, weirdly the bits that went the furthest away from the book were the bits that worked the best exactly yeah. that's what I was about to say that I ended up laughing all the way for the actual Watchmen movie because I, I know the book that well every single shot they're lifting I laugh at so stuff like that or that shot on the gravestone yeah, <laughs> yeah. And it's like, that's not what they're aiming for yeah. Yeah, and, it, and the, the the messed up thing about the movie adaptation in many ways is the stuff they do choose to change is fundamentally not the ending which is minor shit in like 
making the fight sequence earlier with Silk Spectre and um, yeah, or like, more violent. Yeah. yeah, it looks awesome. Problem that entirely undercuts Rorschach as a character mm. because Rorschach has to be infinitely more violent than the other ones. Otherwise, yeah. Yeah. so when Rorschach does the flamey thing, yeah, that's yeah. like child. That's like fucking being no shit yeah. compared to the bone breaking we've already seen. And they're supposed to be uh, people. Yes, you know. Trying to be trying to be vigilantes, not these people who can do backflips and all that. It's impressive. It's somebody who's read the book a lot but hasn't really understood it. Yeah. Uh, I basically said the bits where they, the, the credit sequence where it's quite funny. You know, they're, they're riffing with history a little. That that's joyous in a way that none of the rest of the movie is. Yeah. I would go with Jamie, probably V. But yeah. yeah. You see, I, I think it's. Uh, I know Simon Munro. I think is is, is very uh, scathing of it. But there is something very sad as well, isn't there? Which for each director goes. I'm going to make the film version of an Alan Moore book that Alan Moore loves <laughs> and, then, and I really feel I genuinely feel sorry for the guy who, who uh, made um, League of Extraordinary Gentlemen uh, which is a pretty terrible film I mean it's, I've never seen the whole thing I have to admit there's a point where you just go this is really terrible but he, he made Blade is a, is a pretty good comic book movie yeah, I yeah. think yeah, and yeah. Metal Beast or the, the one they did before but that there's that lovely story of the misspelling on the uh, the grave of uh, Quartermain's uh, mm. wife that apparently that's because Sean Connery Kept uh, he, he couldn't get work out how to pronounce it, so they did it <laughs> phonetically. And then the script looked through the script and went, "Oh, that's how the name spelled. That's what we put on the grave." Oh, that's funny. Yeah. But that bit where they go, "Let's just make the Invisible Man cheeky." Yeah. That really yeah. does change it quite a lot. Yeah. 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 No. It's a, I know. You should do something. Why do they go for the big ones? You could do a Tom Strong. You know, do yeah. something a bit lighter. Yeah. You know, and you'll probably get away with it. Better. Yeah. Halo Jones would be great. Yep. That's it. Ooh. You'd have to do a lot to it, yeah. but. That's an interesting one, actually. Now yeah, you it. yeah. How do you feel about your work? Do you think it would be possible to translate your work to well, cinema, or would you have to? Would you have to be the ones who turned it into a screenplay, and, and the person who, who would take the ideas and turn them into cinematic ideas? No, completely opposite. We've sold the TV rights to Wicked and Divine to Universal, and we have the option of being involved, but we're tempted to just sit back um, because it is so specifically designed to be a comic. Um, and we put ourselves into it. I think we both want somebody else to do that to the adaptation. Take that's, that's basically the same. Yeah. It's like kind of, you know, that just let someone really commit to it and like what they got for what they did and bring it to the screen because it's it's room to be interpreted. There's certainly radically different ways of doing Wikdiv that aren't what we did, which would be justifiable creatively. I think. Yeah, and we'd like them to do that. Also, we're very busy. And late. Yeah, that's the other <laughs> thing. Yeah, the idea still got to make the comic for another two or three years. So the idea of dealing with, I have trouble dealing with just you. Imagine yeah. it's like writing hundreds of actors and whatever. Fuck that shit. Yeah, so yeah, yeah. No. <laughs> we would definitely end that interview on fuck that shit. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. Poet and author Luke Wright. As usual, I find people near the ice cream van or the mobile library at Latitude. Uh, Luke Wright, poet, you've been here for 10 years. This is your 10th year? Have you done every year of Latitude? I've done every year. It's the 11th year, isn't it? Yeah. It's, it's 10 years. 10 years, the 11, 11th, 11th uh, festival, yeah. And you have now also turned to being a playwright as well. Yeah. Well, that's what we call it for marketing purposes. Essentially, my play, in inverted commas, is a 60-minute poem. But if you say that to people no one comes mm. so you say it's a play <laughs> and hope they do come and they have come so that's good but it's done incredible I mean like when, when you were doing Larn when we were all down at the Larn Festival mm. it was chosen to be the favourite thing of the whole weekend that was nice yeah yeah beat, beat, beat Linton Quasi Johnson in the second place that's the only time that will ever happen to me in my yeah, life yeah there's so much animosity and, and, and rivalry between poets definitely there? yeah 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 I mean it wasn't enough just to beat him you know I, you know, I was disappointed that he even came second see is there actually uh 
because I remember when I used to go to poetry nights down, uh, I mentioned it earlier actually, Bungie's, which was uh, near where the Mousetrap is now, the, the mm. theatre in London. Some nights I'd see really interesting poets, but all the other poets had obviously decided that they didn't like this poet. There was one who looked across between like Paul Weller and the child catcher, and he did these poems about architecture, and I thought it was amazing. Mm. But the other three poets all stood at the back making noises and stuff. Is there that um, rivalry? Is that know, just a I, bad night? I think you've got, well... Uh, a bit of both, maybe. I mean, I, I think the actually the, the spoken word scene, as they call it these days, the sort of more performancey side of things, is very warm and supportive. Too supportive, actually. There's not enough critical, critical faculties really in 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 that scene, but it's very supportive. It is, and you only have to be backstage here at Latitude to see because we, you know, it's just like a, it's our AGM really. You've got 60 perts coming together and it's each other the rest of the year. It is. It's 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 very warm and loving actually. And there's always going to be a bit, you know, a bit of bitchiness. But I, when I did the stand-up circuit, there was way more bitchiness. I mean, I definitely felt that we, people used to go um, to the Phoenix Bar, right? After, yeah. Uh, yeah. And, and, and I'm not talking about successful comedians. I'm talking about the guys doing the open spots and that stuff. And then they just bitch. And, you know, people saying things, um, you know. And, you know, <laughs> so that was my experience of comedy was, was, was a more negative one than of um, poetry. But, then, you know, there's, there's exceptions to both rules, isn't there? So there's nice people in comedy, there's nice people in poetry and vice versa. Is the... Um what was it that drew you into poetry? Was it something? Was it written poetry, or did you see live poetry and I think I am capable of this? Well, I saw live poetry. I was in a band, you know, I mean, a teenage band, um, and I saw John Cooper Clark and Martin Yule, and Ross Sutherland doing his second of a gig, um, and I went, I could do that. And I think it was, it was seeing Ross because he's only two years older than me. I thought, like, you know, I could do that. I mean, you know, and ultimately I couldn't. <laughs> <laughs> it was terrible, but you know, you, you. I think it's quite good. It's good to start when you're young. I mean, I was I was 17 in my first gig, just turned 17. So like, I mean, it will be 18 years in January. That I've been doing. So I've been doing it for longer than I haven't been doing it. Mm. So like, yeah, I'm I'm in my mid 30s and I'm coming up for 20 years <laughs> in it. And it's good to start young because you, yeah, you say I think you have that sort of. You don't maybe have the same sort of um, critical faculties, and so you don't really sort of realise how bad you are. <laughs> Well, you've got the, to learn in public, don't you? You have to, you have to be bad in front of an audience. Yeah. You? You know, yeah, that is the most shameful and difficult thing if you start young. I look back to when I my stand-up gigs at the age of twenty-one, and I remember finding some old notes that I burnt yeah. immediately for yeah. fear that you know, as, as much memory of the past. And you know, I'm still creating shameful sentences now. So let's try and destroy all the previous shameful yeah, sentences. Yeah, 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 yeah. What? Um, more where that came from. Yeah. Who are the? If you are put, putting together poetry for uh, for publication. Do you find there are poems that just don't work uh, where, you, where you go without... that? There are certain poems where the reliance on your performance style means that to place them on the page removes so much of the potency. I mean, there's, 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 a, there's a few examples of things that just don't work. Um, but less and less. I, I, the way I write poems now, my early work certainly was the case. The way I write poems now is I use traditional um, verse structures, so it's all rhymey. Um, it, you know, it'll, it, you know, um, it has you know, standardised meter, and I, and, you know, I use proper iambic or you know whatever. So it, the poems should perform themselves. The poems should perform themselves um, off the page. And yeah, I think you know certain, certain things do work better live because because they're, they're simple ideas, you know. And so so you know, um, there's, there's not too much to re-explore on, on the page. But you know, um, so I would say so. My new book's coming out in January. There's going to be about thirty something poems in there, um, and there's been at least twice that much that's been rejected. And often stuff that's worked really well on stage, but it's just you know on the page it just doesn't. Not it doesn't work. It's just a bit 
flimsy. You know, it's a bit, bit you know, it's a bit easy, really. So you've toured with John Cooper Clark on more than one occasion. Still, still am. Yeah, it's and, going. Uh, I, I did celebrity pointless with him the other day. I'm not going to tell you what the result was. Okay, good. Yeah. But we ended up very quickly having uh, a long conversation about the uh, films of Elvis Presley. Yeah, he'll, he's. Uh, uh, he's is that what in terms of your your chat in the back of the car? Are you still mainly talking about say Kissing Cousins and Flaming Stars? <laughs> uh, not so much, you know. Obviously, Blue Hawaii. Uh, or have you moved on to perhaps the films of Tap Hunter? Anyone who knows John Cooper Clark knows to not get him onto the subject of Elvis in any way whatsoever. He's incredibly knowledgeable about Elvis, but once you've heard one Elvis spiel from John Cooper Clark, you don't need another one. Um, yeah, it's hard to get him off there. He, but he, you know, he's just. I, the first time I met John Cooper Clark, or maybe the second time, I, before I even knew who he was, really, he was hanging out in Colchester, that's where I grew up, and he, you know, we were, we were, we were, some, ba- we were some band. And uh, they were called Carrie. They had a one-hit wonder uh, called uh, Molly. Molly Hits Like a Boy, that was the song. And they were supporting the Supernaturals. And we used to go hang outside the Culture Arts Centre, find the band. Yes, you got a smile. Um, and we'd find the band, and then we'd say, oh, we know a good pub, as if they couldn't find a pub. Yeah. And then we'd get to <laughs> hang out with the band. And that often they'd buy us drinks. Um, so we did that. And someone saw John Cooper Clark, we know the road, said, join us. And this band, who had been quite cocky up to this point, and, you know, obviously not that keen to have us hanging around with them, shut up. And he just talked. And it was just the most... He was the fucking coolest motherfucker you ever met. Like, And he's still got that. And I, I have to remind myself of that because I've known him for, like, you know, best part of 20 years now. Um, but, yeah, he is, he, is, uh, he, is a, he is a great, great talker. But something happens, doesn't it, where you know... When you someone becomes someone you work with, maybe even a friend, yeah. that they are two still separate things. Whereas there is the icon that inspired you and yeah. is the thing that... And then you go, and then there's the person you're having the pizza with as well. And I think that's kind of an interesting... It's always been mixed up with me and John Cooper Clark because I say I met him before I even knew who he was you know I'd met I had this time sitting watching you know talking to this band with him and a couple of times we'd met him in the street he was he was he was a mate of a mate's dad um uh, he was just this interesting guy he used to walk around culture and everyone was going oh, it's, that, it's that guy yeah and I hear he's a poet um so I've always I've sort of known him anyway and so so our relationship's always been very sort of uh, matey you know like you know he's like a kindly old punk uncle you know um, and I know you know his wife and I know his kids you know like I've known them for a long time but yeah like he is a obviously a total icon and you know and when I first got into doing poetry you know I did you know read all of his stuff and I you know I, I did my dissertation on him so like I, I know you know his work as well and I am you know I am hugely respectful of him and all that but yeah it's 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 very friendly. It's, you know, he, we we make each other laugh. My, in fact, my proudest moment is I came into a dressing room once, and I said something. To, I can't remember what I said now. It's some sort of private joke we've got going on, and he laughed so hard his dentures popped out, and he had to <laughs> catch them, pop them back in again. <laughs> fucking so, fucking hell, sorry, kid. You know, that's the proudest moment of my life. I made my idol laugh so hard he spat his teeth out. <laughs> and do you know what? In years to come, someone will make you spit your teeth out as well. <laughs> this, these are the joys of the future. I know you've got to go back and compare. I've got, the real, I've got to go compare. Thanks yeah. very much. I'll see you later on. We will I'll see each other see you during later. this yeah. festival. Cheers, Rob. Here is Shappy Corsandi. Shabby Sandy, you are the emperor of uh, humanists now as well. I and am, you've written yeah. a, uh, you have a novel that you're hiding in a bag. Yeah. Oh yeah, where did I put it? There it is, yeah. yeah. We this might as well publicise it. So this is, how much harder is it to actually write something with a narrative and make yourself write something that doesn't need to be heard that night compared to writing stand-up? Well, you kind of, with a novel, you're kind of writing into a black hole for ages until someone you really trust reads it. Um, Who do you really trust? My, my partner Andrew right. is is the person that read it um, all, 
and I mucked up because I'm so disorganized I mucked up his uh, dedication in the book <laughs> it didn't quite any it doesn't matter but no he he heard it all and so, and and that that meant a lot where you kind of feel that you're not stumbling around in the dark as much um I've always told myself that narrative is my Achilles heel because I find it very hard to do in an hour-long Edinburgh show. Or, um, but I realised that's just something I told myself. And um, the brilliant thing about a novel is that you can just transport it anywhere you like. You sort of remember that actually you can do whatever you like. You can go into whatever time frame you want. You can not not that this goes back and forth in time, but you can if you so wish. Um, and I always wanted to write one. But um, I never, I needed to stop, I still needed to go out and pound the streets. I wanted to be out. I didn't want to be locked away in my room writing a, a novel until um, very recently. Is that the first story you've come up with, or did you find yourself writing and then going, well, this doesn't last 200 pages, does it? Ha. Or that, you know, that, that I think, again, because we're involved in a world where there's so much brevity, yeah. uh, the actual idea of, of, of gripping people for a length of time, remaining with characters without being able to go off on some kind of, you know, sudden tangent. Yeah, well, I knew the story completely before I started it. Um, I knew exactly what was going to happen. I, I knew exactly who was going to be in it. And that helped. I don't think I, I would enjoy just sort of writing and to see where it goes. I needed to have it all in my head. And that was really difficult as well, to have the story first and then the writing for me. That, that was something that had eluded me until um, last year when I wrote a treatment and went to Ebury and said, oh, I'd like to write this, please. Was there any uh, kind of, oh, can't you just do another non-fiction one with lots of jokes in it? Or they, were they quite happy just they, to go? You know what, they, um, they did, uh, my initial meeting was for that. Would you like to write a, a, another sort of memoir? And um, I didn't. And there's no You've part remembered of everything me. you wanted to remember, haven't you? There's nothing it's left. It's difficult you know, writing. It. It's, number one, it's difficult. And secondly, stand-up comedy means I talk as much <laughs> as I can handle about myself, let alone anyone, anyone else can handle. And it just isn't creative. And the novel um, was felt, it, it nourished um, it, it nourished me in, in a creative way that um, a memoir doesn't. And if I'm really honest with you, stand-up doesn't. Is so that, do you, is that have, all right have, to have say? You, yeah, of course, it's your life and your mind. Yeah. Am I allowed to reveal my life and mind? No, or my, my novel is way more creative. It's, it's my imagination. It's much more... Much more... Ex- well, it's fun and it's um, less stressful. Far less stressful. Has it, has it put your... Because I, mean, I, I found that I've, I've stopped doing stand-up. I haven't done nearly as much as I used to do in the last That's year. That's a shame. I've just For kind of us. kept it sparse. I don't know. I think we still see each other at charity gigs, don't we? We do. The humanists <laughs> yeah. need more money, it appears. <laughs> their, their effigy of Richard Dawkins won't carve itself. <laughs> and uh, so... I really enjoy writing now, which where I'd, I'd stopped writing yeah. years ago. I just I, I wrote a film, did a few other things, and then there was something about it where I just went, "No, it's much easier to just do the immediate thing." Yeah. And now that I've stopped, I go, "Oh, writing stories and trying to come up with books and and sitting in meetings and thinking, I think they're rejecting this now immediately with their eyes." It's <laughs> uh, is, is kind of a new, exciting thing to do. Absolutely, yeah. And um, like yourself, like for ages, I wanted to be in amongst it. I wanted to be in the hub of things. I wanted to be um, in the sort of rock and roll, grimy side of stand-up. And I still do. I still do, but I feel confident to just take my foot off the 
the guest, but actually, interestingly, maybe only for me, um, since I've written the book, um, I found stand-up. I think I've become a better stand-up just because I've taken the pressure off massively. I'm like really relaxed and uh, playful, and I don't give a. Can I say shit? Yeah, yeah, you can say shit. I don't give a shit, and and that's what you strive as a stand-up. You you strive to get to a place where you don't give a shit, and it's. um, it's made stand-up just this glorious, fun pit where I know what I'm doing. Did you know you wanted to be a stand-up? But like, the, I, I think the first thing that I remember really wanted to be, I think, was a writer, and then it mm. became stand-up after I saw Rick Mail and all that. Yeah. Kind of. So I wonder what order it was for you, because I know a close friend of yours. Uh, she tried stand-up and then became a very successful yeah. novelist. And uh, did you think was stand-up the easier one? Because in one way, I know it's not easy to stand in front of people yeah. being judged, but the easier one because you just have to do it once you're there. Yeah. Whereas well, with a novel, you can go, oh look, that's a pretty thing out of the window, and oh look at that crow. Well, stand-up's a thing that um, that you can do, and there are clubs that will book you, right? And just to be really um, simplistic about it, it's a trade uh, that if you learn it, you will earn a living from it, right? So to that extent, it's a meritocracy, or I don't know what the circuit's like now. I know it's not as good as it, not as fruitful as it used to be. I watched an interview, weirdly, with my father on BBC Persian, who is a writer and does stand-up, and he's a very brilliant stand-up. And they asked him a similar question. No, they asked him um, something about, uh, do you think most stand-ups come from a world of acting? And my dad said something, which I think is true, goes, no, stand-up comes from the world of writing. Every stand-up is a writer, first and foremost, if they, you know... Um, and I, I found that quite interesting, and I kind of think it's true from when I think about stand-ups. We are all writers. We do. I, I think we have more of a kinship with writers than with actors, but mm. they're just both performances. So it's easy to sort of think that um, acting and stand-up is married, but it's actually writing and stand-up is married. Hold on one second. Yeah, no, just hang out. Hello. Hello. I'm, I'm so sorry. I just thought you were chatting. We are chatting. We are chatting. It's not a level of profession. Hey, it's Deborah Francis White. <laughs> hey, Robin Ince. Do you always carry a recorder in case you say something brilliant? Because it feels like you're the kind of guy that might just in case. Because then something comes out and you could just listen back to the day and go, there it was, 2.34. That's where I came up with that new bit of... No, what I do Sorry. is I record everything I say and then remove all the extraneous detail. And now, over 47 years, I only have one C90 and half of it is a blank side. Oh, it is tragic. Nice. C90, by the way, it was a cassette system used for our younger listeners. Oh, um, yeah. Deborah Francis-White, can we talk to you in five minutes very yeah. briefly about sure. your book as well? Sure, yeah, That'd yeah. That'd be fun. Yeah, yeah, absolutely, absolutely. Excellent, so I'll hang around for your interview. And then yes, we'll yes, out. and we'll talk about your book. I brought it to read at Latitude, actually. This is all dynamite, don't worry. Oh, yeah. The, uh, <laughs> I think you're right. Yeah, I mean, that's so I think what I, think think I have a bit of a problem sometimes when I watch certain comedians and I know their stuff's written. I don't mind that when it's kind of gag comedians, yeah, yeah. but when you see the autobiographical comedians and you know that there's been too many writers involved in there, and I go, Oh, oh what, what, like written I, by a team, you mean? Yeah, you know, when you look at certain oh, right, comedians' okay. eyes and you think, Oh, there, there is a level of honesty here which cannot necessarily occur uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. around a, a writing table. Yeah, but uh, yeah. yeah, yeah, exactly. I, I, I forget that I never think of a writer's table, but then. I guess, I don't know, um, maybe I'm naive. But um, the, when I was a child, I wanted to write. But there is, I'm going to be really honest with you, there is that egotistical thing of wanting to be, um, you know, um, you know, not being the one that's, that's ever invited to the party. So stand-up means that you get to have your own party every night. So 
there is that um, massively with stand-up. Um, uh, that just sheer joy and excitement and instant gratification. And I think stand-up's a disease, and I have it. And yeah, you have there it. is a point, isn't it, where you realise that you can you can yeah. you can put the disease can say go through different periods, and sometimes you don't think you have the disease anymore <laughs> at all. I know. And then the the weeping and the gnashing of teeth and the laughter all combined is a kind of rabid dog. Yeah. Yeah, and then when you when you think, oh, I want to give stand up a bit of a rest for a bit, and then I, I start to get really o- over exuberant at bus stops, <laughs> and you think, oh shit, I've got to I've got to go to the ninety nine. Someone needs to trapan me. <laughs> Does anyone know a cellar where they do trapanning? I mean, final question for you what was the uh, what for you was the most inspiring when you've read a novel what was something where you thought wow we, we've timed it so well oh. just as it kicks off so uh, what do I think is mo- what was the book what book for you was there a turning point of going I love literature not just love books because I think that's, oh, there's a little bit where gosh. you can read a certain story and think, yeah yeah okay like when words blew me away and a character blew me away, I have to say it's a book that I think if I'd read any later than 17, it wouldn't have got me in that way. But do you know what I'm going to say? Catcher in the Rye. Yeah. Catcher, yeah. Good, good. Catcher in the Rye was a book that I went, oh, I get that. I get that outsider and I get... And, you know, between me and you and everyone who listens, um, my character Nina has a little sister, a much younger, uh, a, a five, six-year-old sister. <laughs> I can't remember how old she is. And um, Holden also had a little sister that he adored. And I did sort of totally want to have a little sister for my character because she keeps her sane. And I just remember that Holden's little sister was the sanity in his life. And that that's what I stole. Well, genius steals, so that's fine. Oh, bless your heart. Yeah. Thank you. I think I said that. What was it Oscar Wilde for? <laughs> no, it's Oscar Wilde. And Oscar Wilde say everything. Um, it's either Oscar Wilde, Mark Twain, Mark or G.K. Chesterton, and sometimes Bertrand Russell. So as long as you started by going, wasn't it G.K. Chesterton who? Wasn't it Mark Twain who? And then is Nigel Reese the goes, wrote, no, it wasn't. Um, Get off, quote, unquote. Is Chesterton the one that wrote the something of Notting Hill? Yes, yes. The Napoleon of the Notting Napoleon Hill. Notting and, Hill. And The Man Who Was Thursday, which is an incredible right. uh, novel, uh, which is basically about a, uh, an undercover agent going undercover uh, with some anarchists. And slowly you discover that every single anarchist in it is a different undercover agent trying to break into the anarchists. And yeah. then it gets quite delightfully weird. <laughs> Shabby Sandy, your book is uh, Nina Is Not Okay. No. Available on the 28th. Thank you, Robin Ince. It's been Cheers, a pleasure Shabby. as always. We didn't talk about humanism. You are the emperor of humanism now. It's brilliant, isn't it? Thanks very much for listening. Uh, all of these are free, but if you would like to donate so that we can keep making our full-length versions of the book shambles, Josie and Robin's book shambles, then please go to cosmicgenome.com slash shambles and go and click on the Patreon link and then we can keep making as many of these as possible and we're having a lovely time doing them. Hope you like listening to them, really.